When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you all had a great week. It's been a busy week. If I look at this, we've almost hit 10,000 subscribers. And a lot of people are new here. They're new to the investing game. And I want to just give a quick outline of what I plan on going over in this video. So I know a lot of people are messaging me, commenting. They're asking lots of questions and they're new to investing. And last week I spoke on risk. This video, the most important thing in investing. Spoiler alert, I talked about risk in it. And I want to continue on that theme because I think that truly is the most important thing when you enter in investing is making sure that you have your risk understood and controlled so that you're not surprised by things. You're not, you're not going into investing anxious and worried about what's going to happen with your portfolio. And I want to talk specifically about how bonds play a role in that. So we're going to be doing a little review of this slice of my portfolio, but also I want to talk about bonds generally and things that I think often get overlooked in the conversation when people mention bonds. And so I'm going to be going over that. The second thing, and I want to hit on some news, Huawei. This Chinese telecom company that manufactures phones, they're not, I mean, they're not huge in the U.S., I don't think. I don't think a lot of people even know about them, that they exist in the U.S., but they've grown massively. In just the past few years, they've gone from a company that's revenued like $10 billion a year to $100 billion a year. So they, they've grown into the, a giant company and they're one of the leaders in 5G technology. And Trump just completely escalated the trade war with China by banning this company from doing any business with U.S. tech firms. So this is a huge move by the U.S. and the Trump administration. And I just want to give some input on this. I know you've probably heard a lot about it. If you follow any of these YouTubers like MKBHD, that he had a video where he explains the whole thing. There's Lou, who he goes into it and talks about the same subject as well. But I felt like their commentary was heavily gauged towards their audience, which are mostly people that are interested in the consumer end of it, how it's going to affect consumers. I want to talk a little bit more about things that I think they overlooked with how it will affect investors. The last thing I want to go over, of course, is the funnest part, um, the comments and criticism. So I'll be responding to some of those at the end of the video. So here we are with my portfolio. This, I mean, it's gone up to almost $39,000 right now. And what I want to do is I want to show you what I've committed this much money. This represents a lot of my time, a lot of my labor that I've stored up, and I've committed it to a certain strategy. And I want to just give you a broad overview of why I've committed it to this strategy. It relies heavily on dividends. And I found a video that illustrates this strategy and its reliance on compounding pretty clearly. It's by JP Morgan's asset management team. I'll go ahead and play that. Is time on your side? It is if you use it to grow. If $10,000 were invested in the S&P 500 in 1970, it would be worth nearly $300,000 today. If dividends were reinvested, that same $10,000 investment could have grown to over $1 million. Harness the power of dividends and compounding. While water and sun will help trees grow, added nutrients can take them to even greater heights. The same goes for reinvesting. Let's work together to nurture stronger portfolios. So did you catch the important information in that? It said that 
If you invested $10,000 into the S&P 500 in 1970, that would have grown to $300,000, which is amazing growth right in and of its own. But that same $10,000 with the dividends reinvested from the S&P 500 would have instead of grown to 300,000, it would have grown to 1.2 million. That's the difference between compounding and not having compounding. This portfolio is a dividend growth investing strategy. That strategy is not something that just a few niche people on the internet like me are using. It's a strategy that major institutions like JP Morgan, Merrill Lynch, and other banks have used for a long time. It's a strategy where you go in and you identify companies that they pay dividends and dividends are disbursements of cash, of excess cash flow. A lot of these companies like Dominion Energy, Southern Company, these utilities, they have a ton of cash flow. They have regular cash flow and they can't always reinvest 100% of their money. A lot of times they have more money than they really know what to do with. And because of that, they reward shareholders in their company by dispersing that cash flow to them. And dividend growth investing strategy, you try to identify companies that have a tremendous amount of cash flow. They disperse that cash flow through dividends and they also have another characteristic to them. Year over year, they have a tendency to raise the amount of dividends they pay. Those are the type of companies that I'm looking for. Companies that pay me cash flow through dividends and companies that increase the amount of dividends they pay year over year. So I can buy a company yesterday or last year like Costco and I know that the shares that I'm buying for last year are going to pay me more this year. The shares that I'm going to buy this year are going to pay me more next year. That's the idea with dividend growth investment strategy. You try to find companies that are not only going to be able to increase their dividends, but they're going to be able to increase their dividends during hard times as well as good times. When there's a recession, they'll be the companies that continue to win out. That's what I've tried to identify in this portfolio. Now, I know um, there's lots of questions about whether it's better than a growth strategy or whether it's better about this strategy or value or whatever. Everybody can go and find whatever strategy works best for them. What I'm doing with this show, I comment on news, I show my investment strategy, which happens to be this, and I try to explain my reasoning behind it as well as different investing principles. Now, like I said, I have almost $39,000 in this. This represents a lot of my time and labor. And I take that very seriously. So I'm not flippant with this amount of money. I have in my holdings, one of my biggest holdings, which is 20% of my portfolio, are bonds. The reason I want to talk about bonds is because I feel like, personally, that a lot of the conversations about portfolio allocation, whether you have 20% bonds or 30% or 10% or just going pure equity, no bonds at all, I feel like that conversation becomes way overly simplistic, where people just talk about total returns over a 20-year period, and they leave out really crucial, imperative data of the in-between of those 20 years. That happens frequently, um, and I get a lot of people on this channel, a lot of comments saying, you know, I'm 29, I'm turning 30 here soon, but I get a lot of people saying, you know, Joseph, you're way too young to have any bonds in your portfolio. You should be 100% equity. And they have their reasons for it. There's data for it. But I'm trying to explain a lot of different context and nuance of why I choose to hold these bonds. First, before going into the data, I want to explain what a bond fund is. Because these aren't bonds that I'm buying. These are funds where they gather together a whole bunch of bonds and they create a fund out of it. And then the fund gathers together all the interest and pays that out through dividend disbursements. I'll go ahead and draw out how this looks. I assume that you have a basic understanding of what a bond is. 
It's where you loan somebody money, they pay you interest every month, and then it has a certain maturity date. Once that maturity date comes due, they pay you the principal back. If I look at this, here's the difference between what a bond fund is. You have a bond ETF, which is the ETF is like the basics of a fund now. It's an ex exchange traded fund. It's like the new version of a mutual fund. So that's this is what a bond fund is. Now bond funds, if I go back to here and I click into LQD, which is a investment grade corporate bond. So these are companies that are highly rated far, as far as bonds go. They're supposed to be able to pay back their bonds, right? If I go into the details here, it has a 3.5% dividend yield, but what I'm looking at here is the number of holdings. This is how many actual bonds are in this fund, 2016. So if I look at this, this has 2016 currently inside of this. The maturity date is probably different for these. There's some that are five years, some that are three years, some that are two years, but all of them are paying interest in different amounts of interest that all gets averaged out and then it's paid out monthly in dividends in this fund. So what you have is you have bonds currently being purchased, individual bonds. They go into this mixture of a bond ETF that holds thousands of them that are all currently paying out interest all the time. And those are paid out as dividends to the shareholders of this fund. And then when the maturity date happens, they exit. The bond matures and the bond no longer exists because the bondholder has been paid back, the company now no longer has a bond, and this ETF looks and purchases more bonds. And so it flows through this pool here, and in the meantime, the dividend yield is dictated by the rate that these bonds are paying and the amount of people that own this ETF. And so that's what this is. This is a fund that has a lot of people that own this fund, a lot of bonds inside of it, and it's just all averaged out. If people sell out of these ETFs, it makes the dividend yield go up because less people own shares in it. So the yield goes up so that future buyers will buy in and they'll get a better dividend yield. And what that does is it controls the price of these ETFs pretty good. You can see that they're always going to have a pretty decent yield because anytime that a lot of people sell this ETF, this yield will spike up. That'll attract more buyers and then the yield will go back down to where it is. And currently these bonds don't pay a huge interest. We're in a we're in an environment where it's a pretty low yield environment, meaning most of these instruments don't pay a huge amount of yield right now. But when you're buying into this, you're buying into a bond ETF, not just bonds, and the, the interest rate can either increase or decrease over time. And so you're just buying this fund and I wanna get a bigger and bigger position in all of these funds. I like the funds, I wanna hold them long-term. And so I'm planning on just buying more and more of them as I can. Now, part of the problem is, like I said, people get this, really simplistic ideas of portfolio allocation. And I wanna go ahead and highlight some examples of this because the individual investor, people that go through and they think that they can handle individual investing and they looked at the numbers, they said, oh, well, just buying pure equity works out really well. I wanna look at the returns of the average investor. I'm gonna go ahead and throw this chart up. Okay, so here you're looking at a 20-year return by different asset classes. And on the very right there, the lowest return is the average investor. And this is good data. This is a study conducted by, um, you know, this is from JP Morgan's asset management team. And look at that. The average investor has a 1.9% return over a 20-year period. That's what they averaged year over year. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 
average a 5.6% return. We have REITs and gold and oil on the left doing really well over the past 20 years. The reason that I bring this up is not to scare people or to say that you're going to get a bad return if you're managing your own investments. It's to bring up that a lot of the advice is way oversimplistic. When you look at people that tell show you a graph, and I'll go ahead, in fact, I'll go ahead and throw one of these graphs up, and I'll try to prove the point right here. So here's another one. This one is the performance of different funds. So what I'll do is I'll zoom in on the end outcome of this graph. So the, these three different lines, they show three different portfolio al allocations. One of them is 40% stocks, 60% bonds. One of them is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And the other one is the pure equity S&P 500, which most people say, if you're really young, that's what you should do because it gives you the best return. Well, guess what gives you the best return over the past 20 years? They're right. The S&P 500 did. Look at that. That brown line on the top, that one that's just above the 60-40, that is the best return. They are technically correct that if you're really young, if you can just hold on to your holdings through a 20-year, 30-year period, most likely just a pure equity portfolio will give you the best return. Done and settled, right? We don't need to talk about it anymore. Why don't we all just invest 100% in the S&P 500 and forget about it? Now, how do we reconcile that with the fact that the average investor, who knows that? Almost every investor knows that equities return better. So how do we reconcile that return of the S&P 500 with the average investor earning 1.9% over the same time period? Why is the average investor doing so poorly when they know that the S&P 500 returns the best? Let's go ahead and look at the left side of this graph and actually get into what happened in the middle of this 20-year period. And it might explain a little bit of what's going on here. Okay, so this shows you what would happen, right, if you invested starting in, in 2007, the peak of 2007, before we start getting into recessions, before we start getting into corrections and bear markets. From 2007's peak to uh, March of 2009, the S&P 500 portfolio lost over $50,000. And that's if you started with $100,000. So you're down over 50% if you invested 100% of your money in the S&P 500. Now let's contrast that to the 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Look at where they are. That blue line, see how far above that is. The mixture of a balanced portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, far hardly as much, about 25%. And then the 40% stocks, 60% bonds fell far lower as well, like about 15%, only fell, well, even about 10%, only fell $10,000. Then if we shift a little bit over to the right, let's keep going along this storyline here. So we had the biggest financial recession that this world has literally ever known. The U.S. market went through a financial crisis. We had the subprime mortgage crisis. Unemployment rate spiked past like 9% for a while. People were losing their homes. There was doom and gloom on the news. And investor sentiment was anything but cherry during this time period. If we go to um, the end of this, when it starts to recover, look in November of 2009. The 40% stocks, 60% bonds portfolio has completely recovered that quickly. Just November 2009, they have all their money back. They're, they're not down anything in that quick of a time period. The 60% stocks, 40% bonds portfolio is pretty close to recovering. They've only lost like $5,000 at this point. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 investors that are 100% in equities, they're still down 
$40,000 on a $100,000 investment. So they're looking at this big negative $40,000 for this long of a period. The story continues. Let's keep going. October 2010, the S&P 500 barely has made its way back. You're still down $35,000. Meanwhile, the 60% stocks, 40% bond portfolio has recovered. So both portfolios that already introduced bonds in them, 40% or 60%, have already recovered. The 40-60% portfolio, the one where you have 40% equities, 60% bonds, they haven't only recovered, but they're in the green at this point. In October of 2010, your money is already in the green. How would that feel psychologically, especially knowing that the general market, the S&P 500, is still down like $30,000? We continue. Another full year passes. October 2011, the S&P 500 dips down even more. Those investors that are trying to go, well, I was told the equity, 100% equity was the best. But here I've sat for three years straight watching myself lose money. Do you know how long three years would feel like? If you were in the red that entire time, that if you started off losing 55% of your money, then you went up to $30,000 loss, and then you continued down, dipping down about $35,000, then you started making gains, you almost leveled out, and then you dipped back down to another $25,000 loss. How do you think the mentality of the people during this period in October 11 that were 100% invested in the S&P 500 felt? Do you think there's a chance that they could have been have so much anxiety with their investments that as soon as it even went up a little bit, they decided, you know what, I'm going to sell out now. I don't want to lose any more money. And they became part of those investors that averaged the 1.9%. I think there's a good chance of that. I think there's a very good chance of that. If you fast forward, March of 2012 is finally where the S&P 500 recovered and it quickly dipped down below its recovery point right after. Two years Two full years it took longer for the S&P 500 to recover than the people that had a bond mixture in their portfolio. When you talk about these simplistic ideas of just 100% equity is just better, you get a better return. What you're doing is you're ignoring this whole storyline, this multiple years, four or five year span where investors were struggling where you're seeing yourself in the red and you're zooming in on this part at the end where the S&P 500 comes out on top a little bit. That's the problem with this idea. That's the problem that I see when people zoom in on the sending of the story and they forget everything in between. They forget that you're dealing with humans here, not robots. People that have emotions, they have jobs, they have families to support, they have things going on with their life. And seeing yourself go that far into the red and especially enduring it for that long that's not something that I want to deal with, especially if I have a chance to avoid it. I much rather in this storyline, if I had to look back, I much rather be that blue line. I mean, the returns are still great. It's still up there in October, 2018. Look at that. You're getting great returns, but you didn't have to go through the same amount of pain. Your portfolio recovered in like a year and a half, not five years, not in October, 2012 or March, 2012. It recovered quickly. So when I look at bonds, when I look at risk, I'm, we're, we're dealing with humans here. Humans have emotions. We are not above it all. You're not special where you're only going to make great decisions, that you're going to be able to endure everything when the market comes. If people have that much conviction to pure equity portfolios, 
I say go for it. You know, if you really believe that you won't have any trouble, that it won't cause you any grief if the market dips down again like that, then I say go for it. But what I want to do is fully illustrate this entire storyline, the total nuance that goes into it, because there is a lot more that goes into investing. When I look at these bonds, if I go back here, I see them as a way for me to get steady income that's reliable income that will help smoothen out these downturns. If we have a really bad downturn, yes, my portfolio will dip. I'll probably have a lot of companies cut their dividends. I'll probably have some real estate go way down and different things happen. But the bonds will not fall as much as the rest of my portfolio. They will help smoothen out those downturns. And I know that because, well, a big part of the bonds are investor grade bonds, which are, are less risky than equity. And then beyond that, the second half of my bonds are treasury bonds, which are from the U.S. government. So this is more like a high yield savings account. These have like an average of a, you know, 2.7% interest rate on them. And so I'm getting, I'm getting dividends. They're feeding my portfolio continually. I get payouts every month from them. So I like that aspect. But I also like knowing that in the case that we have another 2009, we have something bad happen. I'm not going to be in that category where I have to go, okay, well, I'm going to have to wait four or five years just to break even on this. I want to be on the side that's a little bit more conservative. I'm not seeking the ultimate total best return over a 20-year period. I want to have a good time in that journey. In that time period when I'm investing, I want to be able to invest with confidence. I don't want to have anxiety the whole time or have that gut punch feeling of when you see yourself go way in the red. Uh, so that's why I hold bonds. That's my reasoning behind it. A lot of people don't agree with it, and that's fine. I'm not saying you're wrong. I, if you want to do pure equity, again, the last graph of it, you're, you're not wrong. I just know that the average investor over this time period returned a 1.9% return. I think that's heavily because they went off of simplifications. They thought it would be easy to just stay invested during tough times in a pure equity environment. And so to the people following my channel, I hope you seriously consider your risk tolerance, consider your personality in the future, uh, what you're willing to endure if things go into a bear market, um, because you do wanna protect your money. Like I said, if I look at this, I mean, almost $40,000. This is a lot of my money. I mean, I make decent money. I make pretty good money, but I don't, I'm not a millionaire. I don't make hundreds of thousands a year. And this is a lot of my money. It represents a lot of time, especially if you take out taxes and like health insurance and social security and everything that's taken out of my paycheck before I even get it, $38,700 is a ton of income. And so I treat this with a lot of respect. It's my time. I actually have a respect for this amount of money. And the bonds help me control for risk. The big game you're playing here is risk. You want to be able to control for it. You want to be able to have a fun time investing. This should be a positive thing in your life. You know, it should relieve anxiety, being able to compound your wealth, being able to have your money act as soldiers going out and capturing these dividends. That should be a positive thing, not something that gives you anxiety. And I know if we look at this graph, I know a lot of people during this time period it was not a positive thing for them. This was not a fun thing for them. If you look in the recession, it's easy to say, oh, buy the dip, do that type of stuff. I mean, give me a break. If you're in the middle of recession, you're worrying about keeping your job. You're not worrying about buying the dip at that point. People need to put themselves in those situations. It's much easier to say what you're going to do than what you actually will do. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And I plan on protecting myself against myself. Anyway, there's my rant on bonds. I'll move on to a different subject on it. If you guys have more questions about this specific scenario or this specific subject, I'll go ahead into that. But I just wanted to mention that. I think it's really important. 
So I'll first just give a just a quick update on the portfolio performance. Over the past week, it's gone up a half a percent. Uh, the S&P 500 actually went down a half a percent during that same time period. But that's not a, really a big timeline right there. We've earned $15 in dividends. Not a whole lot. I usually earn over $100 a month, so $15 uh, a week is low. If I go to the month time period, over $130 in dividends earned in the last 30 days. Then if I go to the last 90 days, $357 in dividends. So this number for the past 90 days keeps increasing over and over again. And like I said, if I look at these graphs, I keep track of the monthly earned dividends. This is going up over and over again. My portfolio value continues to increase as I fund it and reinvest those dividends. And then the quarterly dividends is continually going up as well. So I keep track of all this data. I don't pay too much attention to the day-to-day, -day, but I'll go over over long time periods and evaluate the different allocation and what I'm trying to do with it. So now let's move on to the news item, Huawei. This company, I don't know how familiar you are with them. Like I said, they're not too popular in the US, but a lot of YouTubers have covered this story, have gone over it. And I just want to play, actually, I'll play one clip from Marquise Brownlee. He did a, a video where he says, explains everything up to this point on Huawei. This is just one clip that gives like a summary of what he talked about here. I'll go ahead and play it. So as a person that really likes tech, all of this news is terrible because having one less company means less competition, which is less incentive for these companies to work hard and make great stuff. I mean, Okay, so he's saying this is terrible and bad for people that like tech because it's less competition, right? The issue with that is, is it totally glosses over the reason why Huawei was banned. In this whole 10 minute, you know, 11 minute video, he spends maybe 10 seconds glossing over why Huawei was banned. And he talks about how there's concerns, concerns of spying. There's a lot more to it than concerns of spying. As far as the competition goes, Huawei has a replete history of not only copying designs verbatim, but stealing as much intellectual property as they can. There's so many accusations of it. There's convictions of it. It is, I mean, from companies in Europe, companies in the US, all over the place that have complained against this one specific Chinese tech company from going to uh, much greater lengths than any other company does. But then the standard is, there's always going to be some theft in the tech world, but it's a more egregious amount of it. So a lot of the comments here are like, well, you know, this is just the U.S. not wanting to compete. The problem that I have with that argument is if you looked at it and you just said, well, the U.S. doesn't want to compete with Huawei, so they're just going to ban them. If that was the reason why, why hasn't the U.S. banned Japanese and European automakers? They compete way better with the U.S. Uh, manufacturing cars or Samsung. I mean, it's a South Korean telecom company that is a conglomerate that manufactures everything, totally penetrated the U.S. market. Probably over half the appliances in my house are from Samsung. And they're a phone manufacturer, similar to Huawei. So I don't buy the reasoning that the U.S. doesn't want to compete, and so they're just going to ban them. There's too many counterexamples to that. And I think there's a, a lot better explanation. I wanted to just expand on some things to consider when looking at this whole storyline of the possibilities of why the U.S. would ban Huawei. I'll go through a list here. So here is the MacBook, right? We all know what that looks like. Here is the Huawei MateBook. Do you see uh, somewhat of a resemblance there? The designs are, are pretty much identical. Even for tech standards where they start to look similar, Huawei takes no liberties in making their design any difference at all. Then there's articles like this. Uh, this is from Apple Insider. Huawei cloning Apple parts, rewarding employees for tech theft. 
Chinese Huawei uses dubious tactics to try to reverse engineer technology from Apple and other competitors in electronic markets, a report charged on Monday. Uh, in the article, it says that Huawei has reportedly used similar tactics against companies like Cisco, Motorola, Akin Semiconductor. The U.S. Justice Department, in fact, claims that Huawei has a program that rewards employees for stealing data with better bonuses based on how confidential the information is. So this isn't something where it's like a couple rogue people inside of Huawei go out and steal this data. They're alleging, the U.S. Justice Department is alleging that they actually, their, their company culture structure rewards people for how much data they steal. And the higher the rewards, the more bonuses for how confidential it is. We can go on further on this on a Wall Street Journal article just posted a couple days ago. Huawei's accusers describe a wide-ranging, brazen, and opportunistic appetite. The targets of the alleged thefts range from longtime tech pairs, including Cisco Technology, T-Mobile, to a musician in Seattle barely making minimum wages day job. In one case, a relative of Huawei's founder, Ren, who worked for Motorola Incorporated, is alleged to have brought secret details of the U.S. company's technology to a meeting in Beijing. Another suit alleges complicity by Huawei Deputy Chairman Eric in the secret theft. Now Washington is amping up the pressure on Huawei, citing risks to national security. It says that have metastasized as a Chinese firm, leapfrogs competitors around the world last week. Later on in this article, it gives more example of thefts. Quote, they have made verbatim copies of whole portions of Cisco's user manuals. Cisco said in a lawsuit, Cisco manuals accompany its routers and its software is visible during the router's operation. Both are easily copied, Cisco said. The copying was so extensive that Huawei inadvertently copied bugs in Cisco software, according to the lawsuit. Huawei couldn't release its router for shipment until it fixed a substantial number, number of common Cisco bugs contained in the Huawei's routers. For fear of giving away the plagiarism, said former Huawei human resource manager Chad Reynolds in a court filing. So they copied so closely, so verbatim, the software that Cisco created that they literally copied the bugs and then they knew that they couldn't release the software until they fixed those bugs because it would show the public that they just blatantly copied Cisco software. That's the level of copying you're seeing from Huawei and this isn't the only one. We can keep going with it. Here's another article. Huawei's executive is accused by US startup and involvement in trade secret theft. CNEX Labs claims a top Huawei executive was part of a conspiracy to steal its SSD computers uh, storage from technology with help from China's Siemens University. These type of stories, I mean, there are dozens of them. In fact, in this story here, it explains that a lot of companies that know that Huawei is blatantly hacking and stealing their, their information, their intellectual property, uh, they can't file complaints because they're afraid that it would cause too much of a stir or the retributions would be harsher than the theft. And so a lot of them have stayed silent because of the pressure of not wanting to upset the Chinese and not being able to have their business. And all this theft has allowed them to leapfrog across dozens of companies that have started up in different parts of the world because they're, they're able to speed up their development so quickly by copying other companies. Here's another example. One company that did come forward was Chicago-based Motorola, and its accusations developed Huawei founder Mr. N. After two decades of investing in China, Motorola in July 2010 accused Huawei in a lawsuit of stealing Motorola's technology for the SC300, a compact base station that connects devices and wireless networking that could be a mountain enclosed buildings in rural areas. They ended up, I think, settling on that lawsuit. But you can look at this and... 
most companies, I mean, we have little tiffs with other countries of different things, you know, uh, Google will do something like promote its own shoes above competitors and the U EU will find them like a billion dollars for it or whatever. Those type of things are pretty common. But from what I've read about this company, it's to an entirely different level. The whole history is replete with allegations. Huawei's executives, uh, one of them has been arrested in Canada and extradited to the U.S. for different forms of fraud. And so when I look at videos and I see, you know, Marquise Brownlee just saying, well, this is bad for competition, right? That we don't have a great company like Huawei just pushing the limits. That's true that they might, you know, they're, they're competitive and they might help push the limits, but look at how they're getting there. Look at how they're making their gains as a company. If it, is it coming off the backs of stealing intellectual property by any means necessary from other companies? I think that's a, a pretty critical part that was overlooked in a lot of these different reviews. For the people saying, you know, this is such a bad thing that the U.S. is banning a company here. I just want to remind some people of something and point out something here. Let's go to here. Let's take a look at some of the things that China bans from the US. We have Gmail, Dropbox, Google Apps, Microsoft OneDrive, Slack, Google Play, Hootsuite, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, Google Plus, YouTube, Dailymotion, Vimeo, Twitch, Periscope, Pandora, Spotify. They just banned Wikipedia. They've banned New York Times, BBC, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. They've banned uh, all of Google, all of Am Amazon Alexa. They've banned Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Telegram, so on and so forth. J the list just goes on forever. The U.S. is vastly more open and competitive of a market than China's is. If you look at the, the number of steps they do to make it for people from other countries to compete in their market, it's not even close. As far as how this relates to investing, like I said previously, my thoughts on this was that the Trump trade war, I didn't really consider it too big of a threat because Trump has tied himself to this thing. And I still think that it's not as big of a threat, but I think this definitely elevates it. So now I feel like there is potential for the market to go south more than there was before. If China were to do some type of reciprocal retaliation, like banning some form of Apple in their markets, that would send a lot of fear into the markets and you would see the markets go down. This does elevate the risk in the market right now. I also think on the off chance that China does not retaliate in kind, but they use what Trump's doing as a form of uh, negotiation. So Trump has said, you know, maybe I'll, I'll undo this ban if China's able to make a trade deal with me. So he's kind of twisting the wrist with this thing. He's saying, you can make a trade deal and this might go away. You know, your company might be able to do business with us if we make a trade deal. And so he's putting a lot of pressure on China. They haven't been able to make a trade deal yet. If they come out and they, they come out all diplomatic and they want to make both people happy from both countries and they make a trade deal, I could see that as being a hugely positive thing. But if that doesn't happen, if the Chinese are more stubborn and they come from a retaliatory reciprocal type of nature. I think it might go the opposite direction. It'll make the Chinese feel more emboldened and they'll want to invest in their buying their own country's products and not buy Apple phones. And they'll have that sort of nationalist pride. So it could go either way. I do think that this elevates the level of risk in the market, generally speaking. Okay, so moving on from that, let's get to the fun part. This is where I answer some of your questions, respond to some of your criticisms. You can write in, uh, email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. So that's josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. I read every single email. I, I go through and read every single comment and I choose a few to reply to that I think everybody else would be interested in seeing the reply to it. So I'll go through and I'll start from the beginning. And I went ahead and blurred out their, their names because 
I don't want to, you know, have any backlash on people voicing their opinions. I think it's good that they do that. One of them, now to give context to this, he is upset. And there's a couple people that I actually got quite a bit of blowback for my comments on Bitcoin. I said in the previous video that I would not invest in Bitcoin or crypto. And I gave a few different reasons of why I wouldn't invest in Bitcoin or crypto. And some people were upset about my comments about that. They seem to be big fans of the technology and the future of it. But I think that they misunderstood the reasons why I don't invest in it. So here's one of the comments. He says, man, I enjoy your videos. You got some good content. But man, you got to do some research on the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. You are so very wrong in everything you said on the video on that subject. Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, eBay, Fidelity are all working on implementing crypto slash Bitcoin. That's just to name a few companies. Okay, so he says I'm wrong on everything on the subject I said, and I don't think I'm wrong on anything I said. You can go back and watch the previous video where I respond uh, to that question about crypto, and I don't think I said anything wrong with it. I said that I'm not going to invest in it because it doesn't fit with my methodology. My methodology is investing in what I call productive assets, meaning that they produce something. Like I, I buy a company. And that company has products and teams and they work so that if I were to hold it for 10 years, it would have produced a lot of stuff along that 10 years. Bitcoin is a, uh, is a virtual currency. It has some cool technology behind it, but it doesn't produce anything. It can be used as a currency, maybe. I don't think it really can because, I mean, it's gone up 48% or like 40% just year to date. How can something be a currency if it, the price fluctuation on it is over 40% in just a few months, who's going to be able to accept that as currency with that type of price volatility? Nobody realistically. Maybe someday it will. But either way, I wouldn't invest if it was a currency. So let's say it was even used as a currency and all these companies accepted it. I don't invest in gold. I don't invest in diamonds. I don't invest in you know USD. I don't consider that really an investment. My investing methodology is investing with productive assets, not non-productive assets. I would consider Bitcoin an asset. It's, it's worth something, but I don't consider a productive asset, meaning it doesn't create anything. It doesn't produce anything. It's not like a farm where you have a farmer that goes out and works every day. And then at the end of the year, you have a bunch of potatoes that you can sell. Bitcoin just stays there. Its value is based off of what other people will pay for it. So it doesn't at all fit with my investing philosophy. Now, there are some people they invest in gold. They, they make good money doing it. They might invest in precious metals or other things. They might invest in Bitcoin. I'm not at all saying that they're wrong for doing that. I'm just saying it doesn't fit with my methodology. It doesn't create a yield. It doesn't create a, a, re, a continual return for me. It's not a productive asset. To further that point, I wanted to highlight a video of why Vanguard doesn't even hold Bitcoin ETFs or anything like that. I'll go ahead and play this. It's Bitcoin itself, you will never see a fund from Vanguard on Bitcoin. Um, we tend to stay away from assets that don't have underlying economic value. They don't generate earnings or cash flows. Um, so if you look at our, we don't have a gold fund either. Um, and so the Bitcoin, its, its value is based off of scarcity and an artificial scarcity that's out there. It's really tough to imagine where the long-term return comes from other than speculation. For his reasons, the CEO of Vanguard for not having a Vanguard ETF based on Bitcoin is the same reasons I'm not investing in it. There's no underlying thing that produces from Bitcoin. It just exists and it's based off of speculation and scarcity and maybe someday it will be used as a currency. That's not enough for me to actually invest in it. But again, I want to emphasize a point that I'm not saying it's it's bad to invest it in general or anything like that. People, they have the tendency to 
when one type of investing that you like, if somebody else doesn't choose to do that or they try, or they try to do a different one, it's almost like you have to tear down the other person's type of investing or their strategy of investing. You don't have to do that. There's a lot of ways to make money in the stock market. There's a lot of ma ways to make money investing in general. For one person to be right doesn't have to make the other person wrong. Two people can do different investing strategies, invest in different things, and both make good money. Okay. The next question is a simple one. Jim, he says, do you get paid dividends on fractional shares? Uh, the answer to that is yes. If you own 70% of a share, you'll get 70% of the dividend payments. That's how M1 Finance works. The next question after that is Bassam. He says, hi, Joseph. I like your videos. What is your opinion about dividend paying stocks like CHD, Church & Dwight? I have looked into companies like CHD, these consumer defensive companies. I've looked into Procter & Gamble. I've looked into Clorox Company. All these type of companies I think are in similar categories. They make these basic type of household products that just everybody uses. And because of that, people need them during all economic cycles. Uh, but you may have noticed that none of these are in my portfolio. And there's a reason by it. There's a reason why. I personally feel that they lack a good moat. A moat is a thing that keeps competitors from coming in and taking over your business. And I try to invest in companies that have a very strong moat. They have a lot of different instruments that make it impossible for other companies to come in and steal business. When I look at these basic Procter & Gamble, you know, they make all these sweepers and, and different companies that might make toiletries and diapers and cloths and wipes and, and different stuff like that. I see nothing that stops other companies from ripping them off. And you can see that if you go to Amazon, there's, there's Amazon basics and these companies that China undercuts them in price and sells them on Amazon. And you can buy these basic household products for way cheaper. The Amazon uh, basics brand or whatever they're, they have all these different brands for like diapers and this type of thing. They've undercut all the competition. And I see that continually happening. Look at Costco. Costco owns all these different warehouse stores. They own what's called Kirkland Signature. That's Costco's signature brand. And last year, Kirkland Signature sold $39 billion worth of goods. They continue to expand their product line into other categories of common household products. So these companies have done well in recessions, but if Kirkland Signature, this brand that Costco makes, is able to just go into any different category, Costco is able to put them on the shelves right next to these other products and undercut them in price, how, does that not, how is that a good moat for these companies? What can they do to compete with that? I don't see a whole lot. And Costco's Kirkland Signature is already beating out these other brands. You will notice that I have Costco as one of my top holdings in consumer goods, but I don't have these consumer defensive companies. And that's the reason why I think that they're easy to get ripped off, easy to get undercut, and they have an uphill battle, even though they have a really diversified product line. Moving on to the next question, and I'll blur, I'll blur his name out as well. He says, nice dividend setup. Made 45.6% this month, last 14 trading days, using options. The daily turnaround is great. I started with just about what you have in the thumbnail, up 3.65 uh, this week as well. We'll verify for haters. Okay, so when I saw this, I mean, I have a couple thoughts. One of them is I'm glad that he made money, right? I, I don't take any kind of glee in seeing people lose money, even if they do it in decisions that I think are bad decisions. When I see people on different forms and stuff show that they've done option trading and they've lost half their portfolio or, or all their life savings, that puts, I mean, that's like a punch in the gut. I almost have this secondhand feeling of just, ugh. if I was in that situation, it'd just be awful. 
So I'm glad he made money. I'm glad he's on the other side where he increased his portfolio 45% in 14 trading days. Now, the issue with this is that this shows a couple different fallacies. First of all, people are eager typically to share their earnings more than they are their losses. And so you have a bit of survivalship bias here. Survivalship bias is when the things that survive get highlighted and all the losers in the situation get ignored, right? It's like we focus on the lottery winner, not the millions of people that bought tickets that just wasted their money. And that can give you the impression that it's a good thing to go out and buy those tickets. Another thing is when you use examples of this, where somebody turns around and makes a lot of money in a short period of time, people might say, oh, well, he's making good decisions. The issue is, is he's making very poor decisions. Anytime where you're increasing your money this quickly using options is a poor decision. In my, in my judgment, that's a very poor decision. And the fact that it turned out good doesn't make it so that it's not a poor decision. Um, one of the basic things with investing that people have a hard time understanding is the outcome does not determine whether or not you made good decisions. So if you got a great return on an investment, that does not necessarily mean that you made good investing choices. There's a lot of uh, luck involved here. There's a, there's a lot of risk, a lot of unknown. There's randomness in the world. Sometimes poor decisions are rewarded. Sometimes good decisions are punished. Most of the time it works out the other way, where continual good decisions end up usually being rewarded over time. Continually bad decisions usually end up being punished. But there is some randomness at play. I think that if he's making 45% returns in 14 days off of options, he's making poor decisions. I don't think the fact that he came out good this time makes any bearing on whether it was a good decision or not. It was still a poor decision. The person that won the lottery and got the mega lottery, he still made a poor decision buying that lottery ticket. He just happened to be lucky. He got bailed out of his poor decision by luck. And the reason you know it's a poor decision is because statistically, everybody else lost money with it. Everybody else that did it made a poor decision. One person that made a poor decision got rewarded. That's a basic logical bit of fallacy. The outcome of a decision does not determine whether it's a good decision. I can go to examples like this. Let me go to this post here. This was just a couple days ago. We have this user who said, lost $53,000 today on spy calls. And he goes in, it was deleted later on, but I read this one, it wasn't deleted. He had screenshots verifying the losses on it. This uh, Wall Street Bet subreddit is one of the rare places where people will post their losses. But again, we have one person that says he gained 45%. We have another person right here two days ago that lost $53,000 and doing the same thing. Calls are using options, lost a lot of money. That's usually how it turns out if you're trying to make a ton of money in a short amount of time. You end up losing a lot of money that way. The last comment that I'll highlight here, I'll go ahead and blur the name for this one as well. He says $100 a month is, quote, good money. They're little children with a paper route that make more than that. And that is with zero risk. You cannot be serious. So he's referring for context to a video where I made over $100 a month in passive income. It was the first month that I broke $100 and I called that good money. Okay, so I see where he's coming from. I mean, I, I work a normal career and, and make a salary, a good salary. And $100 a month, obviously, in and of itself is not a lot of money. What he's missing here is the fact that he's comparing active income with passive income. Active income, like running a paper route, you're having to go out and take your time and spend your time doing that. Passive income is money that I earn while I sleep. 
I earn it while I eat breakfast or spend time with my kids. It's money just continually in the background paid to me for me not lifting a finger for it. In that instance, making $100 a month is pretty good money for that. Being able to go out to dinner a couple times a month for the rest of your life for free every single month over and over again, that is pretty amazing. Now, my passive income is being reinvested so that I can increase that number. And now I'm up to where I'm earning over 130 bucks a month. And that will continually go up. The higher that goes, the more passive income I grow. So I am 100% serious when I say that $100 a month of completely passive income is pretty good money. And having that increase over time is heavily beneficial. In fact, if you look at uh, just the basics of evaluating companies, you notice that companies that continually have to go out and fish for new deals every single day, like running a paper route to make money, that's something where you only get paid if you do it. And you have to do it over and over again to keep getting paid. Companies that have that model, where they have to sell a product over and over and over again, and they only get paid when they make the sale, their valuation is like 10 or 15 times lower than the valuation of companies that run on subscription models. So you look at companies like Adobe, that has their mark, you know, their cloud services and Photoshop and Premiere and all of those, where you pay 50 or 100 bucks a month for all of it. Those are valued drastically more, 10 or 15 times more than an equivalent company that would have to continually sell its product over and over again. Having constant residual income has a much higher valuation, income that you can depend on and you can extrapolate out numbers of years and decades of how long you're going to get that income. Investors value it more we should value it more as well. I value the $100 I earn residually through passive income a lot more than the $100 where I'd had to go out and, and earn it and work for it myself. That's the, type of, uh, that's the type of thing I'm comparing. I think he's looking at that a little bit the wrong way. He's comparing active income to passive, which are entirely different things. Anyway, I'll end it there. I hope you guys have a good day and I'll talk to you next time.